Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. There were a lot of mysteries in the Bible. Jesus said he was a temple. It was a mystery to them. They didn't understand it until after he was raised from the dead. Then the disciples remembered what he had said, and they were putting everything together because they had the power of the Holy Spirit illuminating their minds. And they're starting to make all the connections of the mysteries. And remember when he said this, and remember when he said that. And remember in John 13, when Jesus said, what I'm doing now, you don't know now, but afterward you will understand. When he was washing their feet, and that's going to grow into the sacrament of confession. We got dirty feet. He wants them clean. You had a bath already. You had baptism, but your feet get dirty. Remember that in John? We didn't understand that for hundreds of years. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed does not need to wash. That full body bathing is baptism, except for his feet, confession. At that last supper, he said that not all of you are clean because he knew that there was one about to betray him. And that is why he said, you are not all clean. And he was talking about Judas. He gives three predictions in each gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Everything that's going to happen, and they just right over their head. Other easy mysteries, like the incarnation, the dual nature of God, the Trinity. I mean, those are easy ones, right? Those are mysteries. Those were all figured out by church fathers. We didn't just come up with that. That was a lot of study, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of prayer. Those are mysteries. The mystery of faith, the memorial acclamation. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. That's taken right from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians at chapter 11. But the part, it's not over yet until you come again. It's not over yet. You're a part of something living. It's not the end yet. We're in a phase of salvation history that is going on word. This acclamation affirms something that we don't often think about. That communion is an act of faith. It is a proclamation that we believe in the passion of Jesus and we believe in his second coming. This is especially important because communion is not the destination of our lives, but a proclamation that we know this life is incomplete until Jesus comes again to fulfill everything. He said he's going to make all things new again. Then there'll be no more tears. He's going to make all things new again in that second coming, even a new body for you. And we say, holy, holy, holy. And it's the sanctus. And we studied it in Luke when he wrote in on the virgin colt. But before the consecration of the mass, we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. It comes right from Psalm 118. The people are crying, Hosanna, which means Lord grant us salvation. They spread their cloaks and their branches in front of the King of Kings. In Luke 19, he entered from the Mount of Olives side. The whole multitude is shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And at Mass, we do that. When we sing the holy, 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 we're getting ready for the real presence of God to come right here on the Eucharistic altar. Isaiah, remember when he had the vision in the throne room of God, in the true presence of God, and the holy seraphim angels were singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We're entering up into that heavenly liturgy. It's in Revelation. John saw it at Revelation 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. This thrice holy 
is not very often in the scriptures. It's associated with the heavenly liturgy, the divine number, holy, holy, holy. This is the heavenly liturgy. And the 24 elders are there whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders casting down their golden crowns, singing, worthy art thou, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Luke told those 12 in authority, that new 12, that they may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, judging that they were worthy, that in fulfillment, the two covenants have come together in perfect fulfillment, 12 plus 12, 24. 24 elders around the throne of God, throwing down their golden crowns in praise and glory for Christ's perfect mission. It's been fulfilled. The two governances have come together, 12 and 12, 24 elders around the throne of God. This Eucharistic reality demands a response of the people, which only begins with their vocalization of the Paschal mystery. The priest's words are not a request for a response, but rather a glorious exclamation that would say, to the Father and to all those present, this, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, who suffered, died, rose again, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, is going to come again in glory. And this is the Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of our faith. The Lamb who is slain, standing victorious in the throne room of God, that Lamb on our altar where heaven and earth meet, the bridegroom and the bride are married there. The spirit and the bride say, come, let all who hear say, come, let anyone come take from the water of life without price. His instruments of torture, the cross, the scourging pillar that he was tied to and whipped, the final Passover lamb at the right hand of the father. But now he puts his own true presence by the power of the Holy Spirit into the unleavened bread for us to consume till the end of time. Isaiah says, why spend your money on what is not bread? Why do you labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. This is free for the taking. This is for all who believe, all Abraham's children. And then we sing the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Grant us peace to get along as a community of believers where charity and love prevail. So we might not have the faith, even the size of a mustard seed, to go forward and receive this great gift, Jesus Christ's own body. How unworthy am I to go have the Lord of the universe on my tongue? And so we quote the centurion who Jesus said, I've seen no faith greater in all of Israel than this Roman centurion. And we say with him, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only say the word. I got tiny, tiny mustard seed faith, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed because that's what the divine physician does. That's what the Eucharist does. It's called the medicine of what? Immortality. You want to live forever? You got all your pill bottles, all your medicines. You got them all packed up. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Daily mass. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's healing. It's the body of Christ. And the priest says, the body of Christ. And we say, amen. Yes, I believe. I agree. It is so. I believe this is the body of Christ. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe it. Help my unbelief. It just takes a speck of faith. Ask for the faith you need to believe it. Never take it for granted. And then Pope Paul VI goes on to say at the Last Supper on the night that he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. He did this in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries until he should come again. 
And so to entrust to his beloved spouse, his bride, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ himself is eaten. We eat Christ. We feast on Christ together. The mind is filled with grace. A pledge of future glory is given to us. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And we say, we look forward to that day. We look forward to the resurrection of the body. Right? You proclaim it at Mass. Paul writes a similar Eucharistic prayer. He says, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say this is a sign, this is a symbol, this is like, let's try this, do this over again so we don't forget this story. No, he says, this is my body. And every Eucharistic prayer starts with, on the night he was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed. How would you feel if you were Judas? I mean, it is remembered every single time we have a mass. All around the world, a mass is going on. Every second of the day, a mass is going on somewhere. In Rome, in South Africa, all it's so universal. And it's on the night he was betrayed. Did you ever have someone remind you of your sin? Over and over and over and over again. I love this painting by Domenico Gerlandio. He depicts Judas on the opposite side of the table. Notice all the 11 and Jesus are on one side of the table and only Judas is on the other side of the table. What does that say? He's not in communion with the others. Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. Judas went away. He left the first Eucharist. Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and captains. Judas is the first Catholic to leave Mass early. (laughs) Judas went away and conferred with the chief priests and captains. He conferred how he might betray Jesus to them. This is an act of premeditation. He sought them out. He's conferring with them. And they, the chief priests and captains, were glad. And they engaged. They engaged. So they started negotiating. They engaged to give him, Judas, money. Judas made the way to the place in which the high priest resided. We call that Spy Wednesday. Spy because he was, had duplicity in his heart. He's having the Eucharistic meal with them. And, and in the meantime, he's thinking, where can I meet up with those guys? Because I want to turn this guy in. Judas agreed and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of the multitude. Satan was very involved this night. This whole next three nights, Satan is very involved. Remember back in Luke 4 when the devil tempted Jesus and he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, that opportune time is now. This is the opportune time. And Satan entered into Judas and Satan doesn't want to see this go down. He doesn't want people free from bondage of sin. He doesn't want death reversed. He enjoys being the prince of the world. In Matthew's gospel, one of the 12, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought for an opportunity to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver is what he was worth to them. The king of kings and lord of lords. What's 30 pieces of silver? In the Old Testament, it tells us that if an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to the master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned to death. So Jesus is worth about the price of an Old Testament slave, and he is a slave. He is a doulos. He's the servant of all mankind. Remember when Judas got mad at Mary of Bethany because she broke up with the nard and wasted the nard? He said, we could have got 300 denarii for that. That could have gone to the poor. But John tells us Judas didn't want that for the poor. He was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. Jesus foretold this would happen in John's gospel. 
Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when they're at table that night, one of you will betray me. And the other disciples were looking at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, who Jesus loved, was lying very close to the breast of Jesus. So Simon Peter said to him, we think it's John, ask him, ask him, tell us who it is of whom he speaks. So lying thus close to the breast of Jesus, John said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? Which one of us? Tell us who it is. And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do it quickly. So after receiving the morsel, Judas immediately went out in the night, the black of night. Did Judas receive communion, that first communion? This is speculative theology, but if we piece the four gospel accounts together, I think he did. Remember, John had the foot washing. Jesus washed each of their feet that night. And he came to Simon Peter and Peter said, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, what am I doing? You don't know now. This is one of those mysteries. You don't know now, but after you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my head and hands as well. Jesus is going to be instituting the Eucharist. He wants them clean. St. Augustine wrote about this. Jesus said, he who has bathed does not need to wash. If you fully bathe, that's baptism, except for your feet. That's confession. But he is clean all over. And if you are clean, but not all of you are, he knew the one who was going to betray him. And he said, you are not all clean, but he offers each of them to have their feet washed. So he cleans their souls and their hearts. Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. Jesus offered him that sacrament of confession before he offered him the Eucharist. Jesus is giving Judas every single chance not to betray him. He's healing him. He's filling him with grace. He's wiping the slate clean of his past thievery and cheating and the money box and all that. Jesus, who could read their hearts, as we've seen all through Luke, washed Judas clean with confession so that Judas was able to take the Eucharistic morsel that Jesus offered to him that night. And with a totally clean slate and the grace of Jesus forgiving him all his past sins, Judas still cooperated with evil and allowed Satan to enter him. That's free will. God gives us that freedom. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Luke 10 told us that everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We'll cut Judas some slack here because the Holy Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. That's not until Pentecost. So can he grieve the Holy Spirit who's not been poured out yet? Okay, we'll give him that. But Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Pretty strong words from Jesus Christ about Judas. Also in his prayer, he's praying for those apostles. While I was with them, I kept them in thy name, Lord, Father. When thou hast given me, I have guarded them and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, who scholars believe he's referring to Judas there, that scripture might be fulfilled. Judas had the capital sin, the deadly sin of greed. He would steal from the money box. We see John telling us that many times, but he was washed clean before the betrayal. How about the other apostles? There are no angels because right away they start disputing about which one of them is the greatest and who gets to sit closer to Jesus and all that. So they're full of pride. A dispute arose right then among them, which one was going to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine? Because that's exactly what Jesus warned the Pharisees about three times right in front of those apostles. Do you see how Satan is active this night? The forces of evil are active. Jesus said, you Pharisees, you love the best seats in the market. Three times he told them that. Uh, they always wanted the places of honor. Now his own apostles want that and they're fighting over it. That night, on the night he was betrayed, 
Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. You guys know that money talks, right? The people with money can buy access to the important people. They can sit at the high table at the dinners and all that. Jesus says, not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest, the one with the least. The leader among you be the one who serves. Which is greater, one who sits at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? But I am among you. I, Jesus Christ, is among you as one who serves. I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I'm a doulos to you. A true servant, a godly servant, must have a servant's heart. A true leader must have a servant's heart. St. Peter was the leader, the chosen leader by the Father. Jesus spent a whole night praying, and the Father told him to choose Peter. And now, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. He's using a double there, a double name, Simon, Simon. Wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. He named him Cephas. He named him Peter. He named him Rock. And now he's going back to his old name, Simon, and he's calling it out twice. Simon, Simon. Simon is going to be shaken up by Satan, really shaken up, shaken to the core. He's going to be given testing on this night, and it's not going to be pleasant. It will be a spiritually violent testing. The powers of evil are very much at work this night. Do you remember when he was first called in Luke chapter 5? And he had been fishing all night. They hadn't caught a thing. And Jesus says, cast out again, go out into the deep, put out your nets. Simon says, master, we toiled all night. We got nothing, but at your word, I'll put down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great sheol of fish, so much that the nets were breaking. They had to call another boat over to help them. They began to sink from the weight of all the fish. And Simon Peter saw it. He knelt down at the feet of Jesus Christ. And he said, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Simon had self-awareness. Simon Peter knows he's weak. And we're back to the old name, Simon, Simon. Satan demanded to have you. You're the leader of my band. You're the prince of the apostles. And Satan wants you tonight that he's going to sift you like wheat. But guess what? I have prayed for you. Can you imagine the Lord of the universe, the one who spoke the word and through him, all things were made. He made Simon Peter. He's going to pray for him, for him. A personal prayer from the Lord Jesus Christ for Simon Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned again, you will strengthen your brethren. Wow, that's a strong prayer. Satan demanded to have you. He must be something else. Satan wants him. Did Satan demand anyone else in the Bible? Is there anyone else Satan wanted? Job. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from whence have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro the earth, walking up and down on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the face of the earth, a blameless and upright man. He fears God. He always turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not put a hedge around him and a house, everything he has on every side? Thou hast blessed Job by the work of your hands. All his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your power. Just don't touch him. Only upon himself do not put forth your hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. God knew Job could handle it. God knows Peter can handle it. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. He's going to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And later Peter will write this. Be sober and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. That's exactly what God did for Peter that night. And now he's writing it for others who will be persecuted. Satan's really going to shake things up. He's going to get Peter at the core. He's really turning up the heat. Why? Because this is the most cosmic battle of all time. Spiritually, there will never be a bigger spiritual battle than this. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. Impossible. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with his transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, that's enough. The thing is, Isaiah 53, 12 needed to be fulfilled, that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered among the wicked. And so the apostles assume that they're going to need weapons for this battle, get their weapons together, and there's going to be a violent takeover. And, and Jesus said, no, two swords is plenty. It's not about that. It's not going to be that way. In fact, when they cut off the high priest slave, Malchus, when they cut off his ear, Jesus immediately healed the ear. It's not going to be a violent takeover. Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed. And he came to the place, and he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's what we pray every Our Father, Lord, lead us not into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw. He knelt down in prayer, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup. If there's any way possible, do I have to go through this? The dread of this exodus, this departure from this earth. Jesus was dreading it. Nevertheless, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthen him. Luke gives us that detail about an angel coming. He is in agony. He's praying even more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Only Luke, the physician, gives us that detail that he had hematidrosis, which is a blood sweat. It's an actual medical condition. It's very rare, but under intense, excruciating anguish, the body is from the ancient Greek word, can sweat blood. Jesus rose from prayer. He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. Have you ever been so sad in such a grief-filled situation that you just wanted to shut down and just close your eyes and drift off to sleep? Jesus said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the biggest night of your life. This is the biggest cosmic battle the world will ever see. And you're going to take a nap? No. Satan is lurking. Satan is prowling. Remember Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and Satan in the garden that night. The snake slithers by and you keep seeing Satan watching and waiting and, and, and ready to strike. Jesus was still speaking and there came a crowd and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with our swords? Is this the time now? Is this it? Is this it? One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched the ear and healed the man. Jesus said to the chief priests, officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? This is going to fulfill Isaiah 53, 12, that he was counted among the wicked. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour. This is the power of darkness. Do you see that the power of darkness, the power of Satan is very, very powerful this night. It is a cosmic showdown. They seized Jesus. They led him away. They brought him to the house of the high priest. It's a 100% documented site in the Holy Land. We know this was Caiaphas' house. And Peter was following at a distance. 
Have you ever followed Christ at a distance in your life? Oh, I'll stay back here. I mean, someday when I get older, I'm going to do a Bible study. Or I'm, 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 I, someday I'm going to go start going to math. I, I, yeah. Have you ever followed Christ at a distance? When they had kindled a fire, this is the court of Caiaphas's court. We know it's the real place. They kindled a fire in the middle of the courtroom. They sat down together. Peter sat down among them. A servant girl seeing him, and he was sitting in the light, and she looked closely at him, and she said, this man also was with them. But he denied it. And he said, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after the interval of an hour, did you catch that? A whole hour. He couldn't stay awake in the garden for an hour, but he's staying awake here. And he's got an hour to think about two denials that he just denied Jesus Christ. An hour has passed and another comes up insisting, certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, still speaking, the rooster crowed. Oh, and he remembered the words of Jesus. Oh, the cock will not crow today until you have three times denied that you even knew me. What a spiritual, violent sifting for Peter. Oh, how he must have felt. Ah, oh, when he heard that cock crow. Oh, and right then the Lord turned and looked at Peter because they're marching him past in his arrest. And right then, Peter has just denied him the third time, and, and there's Jesus. I imagine that to be the greatest gaze of love, eye to eye. And Peter just looks at him, and he looks at Peter. It's the briefest split a second, but he sees the eyes of mercy, the benevolent compassion and empathy of our Lord God, who knew he would deny him three times before the cock crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly, bitterly. And I like to imagine what that gaze of Christ must have been like, like when you're sitting in adoration or just sitting before the Lord, just, just feel that gaze on you of his everlasting, eternal, benevolent love. Now the men who were holding Jesus, mocking him and beating him, they blindfolded him and they asked him, prophesy, who struck you? And they spoke many other words against him, reviling him. They move him before the Sanhedrin council. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. They led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. And Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. They're trying to get him in a snare again, like the coin. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus has full resolve. After that agony in the garden, the angel has strengthened him. He's ready to do the will of the Father. Whatever he asks to the end, he's, he's game on. He's ready. Full resolve to see the Father's will through to the very end to be the perfect sacrifice for us. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. What is the charge that they can get on him now to get him killed? What have they heard? He has claimed to be the son of God, or so they have taken it that way. And that is blasphemy. That is blasphemy to the Jews. They can now take him to the Roman prefect, to Pontius Pilate. We now have a charge, a charge that will stick. We can accuse him of blasphemy. They're in cahoots with Rome. These religious leaders, these bad shepherds, they're going to get this guy killed. They can legally murder completely innocent life. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And come back next week to hear the rest of the story. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 22, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.